couple of weeks ago, I did an episode called The Growling Bombers. That was about the arrival in Britain in 1948 of American B-29 bombers. These planes, capable, given a few tweaks, of carrying atomic bombs, arrived at British airbases during the Berlin Crisis and the famous airlift. They were not there to bomb anyone. They were not even there to participate in the airlift. They were there, as the episode title referred, to growl, to growl at the Soviets, to send a strong message to them. But they would send that message while sitting sweetly and quietly at British airbases. Now, the Berlin crisis concluded to everyone's satisfaction. The airlift ended. But did the growling bombers go home to America? No, of course not. And as we know, there was an American presence in Britain for the rest of the Cold War. But wasn't this in violation of the agreement? The agreement drawn up when the B-29s first came over. The agreement drawn up between the US and the UK saying how many bombers had come over, where they would be stationed and for what duration, and what their exact duties and responsibilities would be. Well, no, because there was no agreement. Quoting from Peter Hennessy's book, Never Again, General Leon Johnson, who brought the bombers over, said, Never before in history has one first-class power gone into another first-class power's country without an agreement. We were just told to come over and we shall be pleased to have you. Well, how very British. And, you may argue, how naive. Because this lack of an agreement allowed the left wing, who opposed nuclear weapons, to rage that Britain had given up control, made itself weak, allowed big bad America to put its nuclear bombers on our green and pleasant land without safeguards and rules. But, staying with Hennessy, he quotes a defence insider who was involved at the time, and he later said, It was decided there should simply be a brief exchange of letters, saying that the US Air Force could have the use of four airfields in Britain as long as it was in the interest of both countries. So if some people saw the lack of an agreement as naive or foolish, others argued it was simply practical. But this very casual arrangement, this, um, hey Americans, sure, you can put some B-29s on our bases, even if that did offer flexibility and was nicely practical and adaptable, it didn't cover the awkward, difficult and painful question of nuclear use. Who gets to press the button, as it were? They might be American planes carrying American bombs, but they would be on British soil, launching from British bases. So who gets to decide? No, that tricky question wasn't dealt with in the nice, casual setup which brought the B-29s to Britain in 1948. Indeed, as we mentioned in the Growling Bombers episode, the B-29s which first arrived here were initially not even capable of carrying atomic bombs. They required changes and adjustments before they could be kitted out with nukes. 
So certainly the plan which brought them to the UK didn't cover the question of who gets to press the button. So the Berlin crisis and the airlift ended in 1949. This had been the incident, of course, which had brought the B-29s over to Britain to growl. But to growl casually, without any strict agreement on their use. Well, the Berlin crisis was over, so there was no rush to get anything pinned down on paper. Indeed, the sighting of US bombers in Britain had worked so well that the Americans, instead of saying, OK, we're off home now, actually asked for some other air bases. This time, they wanted a few which were further west. The existing three were all in East Anglia, vulnerable, perhaps, to a Soviet attack from the North Sea. So the Americans were given four other bases, which were further inland. Bryce Norton and Upper Hayford in Oxfordshire, Fairford in Gloucestershire, and probably what would become the most famous one, Greenham Common in Berkshire. So the Americans were bedding in, and still without firm agreement on nuclear consent. The issue was made more pressing, however, by the outbreak of the Korean War the following year in June 1950, because fears developed that the Americans might use the atomic bomb in Korea. These fears stemmed from the boisterous General MacArthur, with the New Statesman writing that General MacArthur seems intent on turning the Korean War into a world war. Newspapers in Britain and America led on the 30th of November 1950 with the unsettling news that a nuclear attack in Korea was possible. The Evening Standard had the scary front page headline Truman Considering Use of Atom Bomb. The story said Truman was giving, quote, active consideration to using nukes in Korea. And he seemed to imply that the decision to use them lay with General MacArthur out in the field. This caused huge consternation, as the permission is supposed to lie with the President and only the President. The White House was forced to issue a clarification afterwards, stressing that it is not up to MacArthur and that only the President can authorise use of the atomic bomb. I've recorded a bonus episode for patrons um, on this topic. You can find it now on patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo. It's called Five Guys at Ground Zero. But whether or not MacArthur had been delegated nuclear responsibility, it had cracked the issue wide open, particularly as General MacArthur had plenty of detractors in Britain who shuddered at the idea of him being given the the golden key to all the nukes. And they were particularly worried that America might go ahead and use atomic bombs when some of their atomic bombers were sitting, ready and waiting, on British air bases. So if things kicked off, if Korea went nuclear, would these bombers be used? Therefore, dragging Britain into a nuclear conflict? And would we have a say in it? 
Is it right that a foreign country could start a nuclear attack from British soil without British consent? The matter had bubbled along quietly since the B-29s arrived, but Korea burst it right out into the open. And so, with the newspapers crying that Truman was considering atomic use in Korea, the British Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, got his hat and coat and flew across the Atlantic to speak urgently to Truman. The newspapers on the morning of 1st of December 1950 tell us that Attlee had made the decision to fly out just hours after Truman's troublesome press conference and his talk of possible nuclear use. Atom bomb, grave concern in the house, said the Liverpool Daily Post. Atlee flying to see Truman, the Birmingham Post said. And they called the Korea situation critical and said that Moscow Radio had now broadcast Truman's comments on possible use of the atomic bomb. The Guardian, at this point still called the Manchester Guardian, said Mr Atlee flying to Washington, MPs shocked by atomic bomb statements. The Telegraph reported that more than 100 Labour MPs had presented a petition to their leader, Clement Attlee, saying that British troops should be withdrawn from Korea if the US was considering using the bomb. The Birmingham Post had the headline, Britain demands a voice in atomic bomb policy. All my access to the old newspaper archives is paid for by my patrons, so thank you to everyone who donates. Patreon.com forward slash Atomic So Clement Attlee was off to America to speak to Truman and to try and calm everything down. As the BOAC's Strato Cruiser lands, President Truman with the British Ambassador and Dean Atchison welcome Mr Attlee to Washington for vital talks on which the peace of the world may well depend. At the White House the same evening, with Defence Minister General Marshall and Foreign Secretary Atchison, President and Premier prepare the ground for their two-hour talk. Four major questions must engage their minds. Korea and our forces there, defence in the West, and the prevention of world war. At a time such as this, the Premier has the support of all parties and the faith of all men. He has the gift to rise to a great occasion in a simple way. He speaks for Britain, even as now he speaks to the press of America and the world. So we had all been given a bit of a scare. Truman seemed to imply that he was actively thinking of using the atomic bomb, and he seemed to imply that the decision to use it lay not with the civilian president, but with a big macho military man out in the field. Remember, at this point, late 1950, the Soviets now had the atomic bomb. America's nuclear monopoly was over, and with it, a certain sense of security. Even then, there were still American politicians who dismissed this as what we might now call fake news. Some refused to believe the Russians had the bomb, and this fired the idea that America should strike while she still had this imagined nuclear superiority. 
So in the midst of all this chaos, sensible, dull, calm Clement Attlee arrived in America. Amongst the various items on the agenda was the subject of nuclear use and consent. Will America seek our agreement to use the bomb, as they did in 1945? Arguably, Britain had even more of a right to be consulted and informed, as we were now hosting American atom bombs. Before he left, Churchill urged Attlee to remind Truman of the Quebec Agreement, which we've discussed in earlier podcast episodes. You remember that this was an agreement, not a treaty, not finalised and ratified by Parliament and Congress, but more of a, a gentleman's agreement between FDR and Churchill, which said that neither Britain nor America would use nuclear weapons without the other's consent. This agreement was never made public, and it was never official, of course, and Attlee had to politely remind Churchill that this agreement didn't carry any weight anymore. It was drawn up between Churchill and, yes, a dead man, and had nothing to do with the post-war Truman administration. It was impossible to hold them to it. But the historian Kevin Rain has said that Churchill became obsessed with the Quebec Agreement and his energies were bent on upholding it, reviving it, making it known to the world. But Truman didn't care about the Quebec Agreement and it was in Attlee's interests to also let things slide because it had five main points in it. One of which... Atlee was keen to drop. The point Atlee didn't like was that the Quebec Agreement limited Britain's post-war use of atomic energy for industrial and commercial purposes. The idea was, of course, during the war, when the Quebec Agreement was drawn up, that yes, America and Britain will work together, let's be atomic partners, but Britain shouldn't use this knowledge to then run ahead after the war and start getting a commercial or industrial advantage. So Attlee, as the post-war Prime Minister, would have been perfectly happy for that point to disappear. So he could hardly complain if Truman let some other Quebec points slide. So no one was caring about the Quebec Agreement. No one believed it could or should be upheld, except Churchill, who was still clinging to it. It feels strange when you read about that to feel sorry for Churchill. An old man now, stuck across the ocean, stuck in opposition, calling out in vain to his successor, don't forget the Quebec Agreement, which I agreed with FDR when we were both the kings of the free world. And now... He is dead and I am wilting. So Attlee landed in Washington and faced Truman without the comfort of the Quebec Agreement. Even if Quebec had still stood, Attlee knew that the recent Klaus Fuchs atomic spying scandal had dented any hope of Britons to stand side by side with America as post-war atomic partners. So Attlee knew that 
he was weaker than Churchill was when he had enjoyed cigars and brandy with Roosevelt during the war. So what was Clement Attlee asking from Truman on this visit? Well, he didn't make demands. Uh, He didn't have the clout to make demands, surely. Instead, he asked that there be clarity on America's nuclear use. Don't use them without consulting London. And Truman agreed. But there were two caveats. One, Truman said, yeah, I'll consult London, as long as it is practicable in an emergency. And two, his advisers made it clear that this was being offered to Clement Attlee as a private and personal assurance from Harry Truman. It wasn't a, an official stance from the president. So the official outcome, released to the press, was that the president will, quote, desire to keep the prime minister at all times informed of developments which might bring a change to the situation. Now that statement is quite meaningless, really. It means that Truman could nuke the world to ash and then say to London, sorry Clem, tried to ring you but you weren't in. It's like getting one of those wee red cards from the Royal Mail when you've missed a parcel. Sorry you weren't in. We did try. Perhaps Clement Attlee knew that that was the best he could get. Because he went home with that result and tried to present it as a good deal. He said to the House of Commons, quote, I was completely satisfied by my talks on this question with the President. There is no difference of opinion between us on this vital matter. As you can imagine, Churchill was very dismissive. He wanted something more concrete, more precise, especially now that American nuclear bombers were on British soil. He was itching to tell the world about the Quebec Agreement, and so he went over Clement Attlee's head and went straight to Truman to say, look, can I make this thing public, that we once had this agreement with America? Unsurprisingly, Truman said no. We can assume part of the reason Churchill was so keen to show everyone the old Quebec agreement was not just to make a point about British and American atomic relations, but to rub Clement Attlee's nose in it. <laughs> when I was Prime Minister, I had the President agreeing not to use the bomb without our permission. But look what your Labour Prime Minister gets instead. The best he can do is a wishy-washy promise to try and maybe check in with us beforehand. But Truman said, no, you, you can't publicise the existence of the Quebec Agreement. This was partly because, at this point, Truman was trying to get permission from Congress to move more bombers out to Western Europe, solidify their commitments over there, give NATO some firm ground to stand on. So the last thing he needed was for his opponents to think that he was going to hand over permission on tricky defence issues to a foreign power. He was still up against some lingering isolationist tendency in America, so let's not give them some fuel. But there was... One piece of good news for Clement Attlee, 
and all those back in Britain who were worried about cavalier talk of nuclear use in Korea. A few months after the Truman sacked General MacArthur as the commander in Korea. And that is what we now turn to in my bonus podcast episode, the whole notion of the president delegating nuclear authority to commanders. Officially, no one can make that decision except the president. And certainly Truman was always at pains to stress that only he can make the decision and the bomb is under civilian control, not military. But as we will see under Eisenhower, who came after Truman, this changed slightly. A nuclear authority was delegated to certain other people. And we will discuss that in my bonus podcast episode, which is called Five Guys at Ground Zero. And you can find that at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And if you join there for £3 a month, you get access to all my extra podcast episodes. So that was the one bit of good news for Clement Attlee. At least MacArthur was no longer in charge. So MacArthur was fired in April 1951. And then, later that year, Britain held a general election. And we had a new Prime Minister. Clement Attlee was out and Winston Churchill was back. And in our next episode, we will look at his efforts to get America to notice us, take us seriously again. Don't nuke people without our permission. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. As I say, if you want some more, go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo, where there's a new episode called Five Guys at Ground Zero, as well as plenty of others for you. And let me thank my new patrons who joined this week. Thank you to Tim for increasing his pledge. And welcome to Wine, Travel and Song, Ohio Girl, Pumpkin Jabba Peach Pug, Julian Hills, Eric J. Byrne and Deborah Hunt. Thank you all for supporting the podcast and I hope you enjoy your extra episodes.